right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Isaac. If you haven't met me, I do a lot of the teaching here, and I would love to meet you if you haven't. Uh, we are in the halfway, probably about the halfway point of our series in the book of 1 John entitled, The Heart of a Father. Today is going to be a little unique. I have a, it seems just like a such played out joke that I say this all the time, and I got to stop because it's, it's serious. I have a shortened sermon today. It's a condensed one. Every time I say that, I, I, in the past, I just always laugh, and I just laugh at my, myself because that's the intent. And today, it has to be the intent, uh, and it has to happen because we've got a lot of things going on. We're going to be doing um, some baptisms at both of our services, some what we call uh, student graduations, where we take our, our students into kind of the different transition periods of going to junior high, high school, graduation of high school, et cetera, and we pray for them as a church family. So all of that will be taking place today, which means I'm going to cover very little ground. In fact, we're only going to cover uh, three verses really today, and it's going to kind of be a shortened, condensed thing. So as we, we move along pretty fast, just uh, stay with me because today is uh, incredibly important. Um, every series, every Sunday, in the book of 1 John has been important, but there's been a few Sundays that I think are extremely important, uh, extremely critical, and my prayer has been that every single person in this room would um, leave different, and my prayer has been that some of you in this room uh, would leave transformed, that you would leave with a different understanding of yourself, the world, and, and God. And so let's just dig right in. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. All right. This first line is where everything we're talking about today rests. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you might have heard this verse and said it or even quoted it. But I mean, you've you got to stop and take that in. What kind of love has been shown to us that God himself calls us children? We are his kids in Christ. Now, I can't even begin to like unpack that truth that is so beyond human articulation, vocabulary, and language. The closest thing we have to try and understand that is the biological and social construct of human families. Like, if you have children, that is the closest parallel that you could try to imagine uh, this image that God is giving us. Uh, I, I, I'm a father, I have two kids, and so when I think about my kids and the love I have for them, it, it is. It's impossible to articulate. It goes beyond human language. And I am a fallen, broken human being. But even in the midst of that fallenness and brokenness, I can't even begin to explain how much I love my kids. Um, and if you, if you don't have kids, think of the person that maybe you might love most. But if you have kids, absolutely think about them right now as we, we think about this image. I mean, there, there are moments... And, and if you're, you're a parent, especially if, if you're a parent right, right now with like little kids like me, uh, it could be a flood of emotions because you've been going, you know, you've been sleep de deprived and 
experienced that slow level of torture over the last three or four years where your you know, cognitive abilities have decreased. Um, but there are moments when like your child just does something and it just like ridiculous, it just melts you, it like melts your being and your heart. And stuff that used to be like completely cheesy and like just stupid to you now is like the most wonderful heartwarming experience you could have. So there's, there's a line, and parents know this line because it's in lots of books. I think it's in one book in particular that everyone reads, but it says like, I love you to the moon and back. You know what I'm talking about? I love you to the moon back. Before kids, me, Isaac, I'd be like, come on. That's so cheesy. I love you to the moon and back. Who says that? And then, like, when I'm holding my daughter, and if I read a line like that in a book, it's like, oh, baby girl, I love you to the moon. I love you to the moon and back. I, I, I mean, to the stars and back, to the sun and back, infinity plus one. The, the most, like, cute thing happened, uh, uh, and I wish I could just, like, capture it was I told my daughter I loved her to the moon, and she goes, I love you to the stars. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's it. That is it. Now, he, he, here is the point, though. I love, I, I can't express how much I love them, but however much I love my kids, that love is taking place in the midst of a fallen, broken, sinful humanity. I am a wretched, depraved individual who is selfish, who is greedy, and I could list sins on and on and on. But even in the midst of that, the power and love a father has for his children is incredible. But I know that type of love that I express is but a fallen, fleeting fragment of love compared to the love of God for his children. I mean, families have a way of giving your life ultimate purpose and meaning. Um, as a pastor and, and just someone who has had loved ones die and you, you've been with them on, on their deathbed, 95% of the thoughts that people have on their deathbed when they're breathing out their last breaths, they are not the things that we spend 95% of our time thinking and worrying about, right? When it's, when it's all on the line again and again and again, people just, they want their family there, they wanna know their family's gonna be safe, they wanna know their kids are gonna be safe, their spouse is gonna be okay. And death always has that way of putting things in perspective. And, and the beauty of the message of the gospel that we hear in, in, in the gospel accounts is that in a very similar way, God himself, as he's dying on a cross, Jesus calls out to his heavenly father and prays for his, his kids. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's, it's those things that fuel life and meaning and, and purpose and whatever type of love we experience on earth, however beautiful that is, it is but a fallen, fleeting fragment compared to the type of love that God is expressing for his kids. We're going to return to this, but I just want to lay that foundation, um, and then we're, we're going to have to come back and do some work with it. Uh, John continues in chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We talked about that word beloved. It's agapatoi in the Greek. It's a cool word. Um, and the, the kind of profound nature of this word is that when it's used, it's used primarily two ways. One, God calls his 
family, his people, the church, agapatoi, beloved. But then in instances in Scripture, you'll see other Christians talk to other Christians with this language. So the, the, the blood of Christ that draws God's people together puts us together in this spiritual family, and the type of love we ought to have for one another is an agapatoi type of love. We are beloved. We are beloved. If you are sitting next to somebody who you do not know, if you are in Christ and they are in Christ, there's something that binds you together that is stronger than you can ever imagine, even when you're unaware of it. Christ does that. He brings his people together. We are the beloved of God. Then there's this interesting phrase that says uh, in the second line, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And what John is talking about here is the resurrection. So when Jesus dies, he resurrects physically, material. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. And likewise, the end goal of humanity is not to die and become a little spirit that floats off into heaven in some disembodied uh, existence. The end goal for you and humanity, for those who are in Christ, is physical, bodily resurrection. And I say that because oftentimes we think we know that, but we've been so influenced by like cartoon theology that it actually affects our understanding of the world. So uh, in old Looney Tunes cartoons, like, let's say there's the uh, wily e. coyote, and an anvil falls on him, and he kind of cartoon dies. What happens immediately after? The little kind of blue spirit thing floats up, and sometimes got a little harp or something like that, and he goes and lives this disembodied, non-physical, spiritual existence up in heaven. And so many Christians grow up thinking that that's sort of what happens. You die, and you become a spirit, and you go up into heaven, and then you live this kind of spiritual existence. The Bible says, no, 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 at the last day, there is a physical resurrection. You get a new body. When I was a child, heaven used to scare me. It would terrify me because what I thought of heaven was influenced by all of, all of this talk. And so I thought heaven was going to be for all eternity. I am this spirit which is divorced from all the things I know and love about earth. So it was like, you know, little kids ask questions that are actually profound to be like, well, is there fishing in heaven? If, I, if everything's perfect and I'm just a spirit, well, I mean, if a hook goes in a fish's mouth, that, that's got to hurt the fish at least, so that, that's not allowed in heaven. You get all these weird little thoughts going on. This is what you need to understand. All the things you know and love about earthly existence, they are the broken, sinful versions of their ultimate reality. When new heavens and new earth happen, when new creation happens, all the things we know and love about God's good creation are renewed and restored. The best things in this life are but fallen versions of them. So heaven is going to be incredible. It's awesome. It's material. It's physical. It's not little spirits floating around on clouds. It's new creation. I wish we had uh, more time to, t to talk about that, but there's so many implications. By that. There's a book uh, by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. It's probably the best work done on understanding heaven and restoring it back to its kind of biblical perspective rather than its kind of 21st century modern American version of it. Verse 4, and this is all we're doing, and then we're going to circle back. 
Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, um, this is a constant theme in the book of 1 John. John is again and again and again saying, you cannot claim to be a Christian and not demonstrate some type of fruit or evidence of that. You are saved by grace, but there is a demonstration of grace in your life, that you've been born again, you've been made new by God, you live differently. Last week, uh, Eric Smith preached here, the founding pastor of the church, and he, in his sermon, he had a, a test. He said, there's three tests that you can give yourself, and he took all those kind of questions from 1 John, and it has to do with what we're talking about. If you are in Christ and you are abiding in Christ, there's three quick questions you can ask yourself. And he said the first one was the character test. Does my life demonstrate that I am a Christian? If there's no evidence, there's no fruit, you live and talk and, and spend your money and do everything else just like the rest of the world does, there's a problem. There's a problem. You've got to have a character test. God's people should be different. They should live different lives. The second test, he said, was the love test, how you treat other Christians. Jesus says, you will know, the world will know that you belong to me, that you're my disciples by your love for one another, how church people treat each other. And the third test was the doctrinal test. And it was kind of just three quick questions that allow you to gauge where, where you're at. Now, okay, this is where I want to spend all of our time, and it's the most important part. When God talks about his children, there's an image that's used in the Bible, and it's that of adoption. And the reason why it's incredibly important to understand the image of adoption is that the Bible doesn't say we're all children of God and we've always, always been children of God. Although that sounds nice and it kind of what we want to hear, the Bible actually says that before Christ, you are a child of wrath. You're, you're, you are not his kid. You belong to the world, the flesh, and the evil one. And Three, two weeks ago, I defined each one of things, succinctly said, um, there are three spheres of evil in our world. There's the flesh, your own personal desire to sin. There's the world, the systems, the powers, principalities that create our kind of cultural context. And then there's the evil one, kind of the supernatural forces um, in Satan and, and demonic activity. So here, here's, here's what, what's going on. Because of our flesh, our own evil desires, the world, and the evil one, and because of our own journeys, our pains, our scars, our hurts, our upbringing, all of those things taking place in our development rewire our brains to believe lies about ourselves, the world, reality, and God. All of these things, your hurts, your pains, your background, the flesh, the world, the evil, and all of these things on a daily level since the day you were born are wiring your brain to operate in a certain way and believe things about yourself, reality, and God. You may be saying, Isaac, that sounds like an exaggeration. Do you really think your brains are being rewired by all things? No, I mean that literally. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, let's, 
picture a dog who's bought by a guy as a puppy, and the dude's a bad dude, so he always hits the dog. Always hits the dog, is mean to the dog, beats the dog, and after three years of living with this dog that he hates, he takes the dog out in the country, rolls down the window, and throws the dog out, abandons him. You're driving by. 20 minutes later, you drive by and you see the little dog, and you, you know, you can't resist taking that. You know, you rename him Skippy, and you give him a little collar, and you take him home because you can't abandon this little dog. Now, one of the things you immediately notice that when you or your other family members want to play with Skippy the dog, if you jump at him too fast to play, or you raise your hands, or you do something like this, you just want to kind of play with the dog, he immediately does the cower thing. And some of you have seen that where a dog's been hit a lot. If you raise your hand, it will cower. It'll just kind of go like this. And sometimes, I've seen even dogs, sometimes it's not because they're abused, it's just because some dogs are just, I don't know. They're just weak dogs, and they, they probably, sh- but you see dogs, I was going to, this stuff's recorded and goes online, it's public, so some, some I have to censor. Um, but some dogs will cry. By you raising, it's, it's, they, they anticipate it so much, they actually are acting like they're in pain already. And what's occurred? That dog, in its previous owner, wherever he saw someone raise their hand, it got hit. So what's taken place is that the dog no longer sees an arm or a hand being raised. He sees the future function of that hand and arm. And the future function says, I'm going to get hit. So the dog immediately has a response based upon past hurt. Get how that works? Again, every single person in this room, because of your journey, your pains, your scars, because there are these forces at work of evil in the world, your own flesh, the world, the evil one, all of these things working together make you believe certain things, many times lies, about yourself, the world, and God. This is probably clearly illustrated with um, parents who adopt children in their teens, or for those parents who are working in the foster care system, or for those who maybe grew up in a foster system or were left by their parents and were adopted in their teenage years. Um, You can have a foster care kid who's maybe 12 or 13 years old, and uh, you bring them into your home, and you love them, but you're not perfect, so one day you just lose your temper and you, you, you you raise your voice with the kid. And you, you tell the kid, go to your room, and you're upset. And then like four hours later, you realize, wow, he, he, he hasn't come back out. He's been in his room for four hours. So you go in to check on him, you knock on the door, open it, and you see this 12 or 13-year-old boy crying with a suitcase packing up. And why is that occurring? Well, because every other person who yelled at him or got upset with him sent him down to the next family. So he just thinks, this is one in line, and I thought I was going to find happiness here. I thought these people love me, but they're going to get rid of me just like everyone else has. Even crazier, sometimes the inverse of that is still true, where let's say you have a 15-year-old, say a girl this time, 15-year-old girl who you've brought into your home, you're being a foster parent too, or maybe you've adopted them, and you had a great day, you had a wonderful day, perfect day, and you notice she goes up to her room, and she doesn't come out for a few hours. You go up, knock on the door, open the door, and she's crying, and she's packing her stuff, and she's gonna leave. 
You go, how could that possibly be? Well, it's because this is the most stable thing she's ever known, and it's terrifying because the only thing this girl knows is chaos. And so she's terrified of any order and love because it's a foreign experience. And more importantly, she actually really is beginning to love the family, and everything else that she's ever loved in her life is always taken away. So then rather allow herself to fall more in love with this family, she's going to shut those feelings off so she could protect herself. Some of you had dads who weren't in the picture. They left in your early childhood. You, you decided, dad left me. That must mean I'm of no value. How could a daddy leave a child? And you're five years old and you're already telling yourself that. And you live the rest of your life with those lies going on in your head. All of us in this room have hurts, pains, scars. We have these layers of evil and they're at play and at work in our lives and they're rewiring our brains to think things about ourselves, the world, and God. The message of the gospel is that we were not children of God. We're children of wrath. We were abandoned on the side of the road and no one wanted us, but God himself sought us out from heaven, came down, tapped us on the back and said, mine, you belong to me. You are my son, you are my daughter. And then for the rest of your life, you have to begin to deprogram all the lies and evil and habits of sin that are in your life. That's in the biblical sense called sanctification. Doing away with sin in your life, the sinful habits that are in your mind and in your flesh. But it's, 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 it's a journey. There's a movie that illustrates this perfectly. This movie is awesome. Uh, it's called Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio. Some of you might have seen it. Um, it's, I think it's more than 10 years old now. But I want to show you a scene that's going to illustrate this concept perfectly. Uh, in this movie, Blood Diamond, uh, there is an African uh, fisherman. I think he's from U- U- Sudan or uh, I forget which country. Um, but his son is kidnapped. His son's a young adolescent boy, probably 10, 11, 12 years old. His son is kidnapped, and uh, the reason why his son is kidnapped is there's mass kidnappings of young boys because they make them child soldiers. So there's militants, there's rebels, there's evil men, and they kidnap young boys and force them to become child soldiers to fight their wars. Now, a normal child doesn't just have a normal life with a family and become a trained killer overnight. So in order to create a child soldier, you have to rewire their brains. You have to get them to think differently. And this isn't, by the way, just in a movie. This happens all the time in the hundreds of thousands. Child soldiers, it's, it's, it's a real thing. It is sick and evil. And what you do is they, they kidnap the kids, and they beat them, they torture them, they keep them in darkness, they sleep deprive them. They tell them, the reason why you're here is because your parents were not strong enough. They were weak. Your parents could not save you. A few weeks after that, they tell him, your mom and dad have already forgotten about you. They do not love you. Your mom and dad never liked you. You were always out. If they really loved you, they would come find you. We offered you back, but mom and dad didn't want you. All the while, the physical, the mental abuse is occurring, and the child is becoming more and more programmed to be a killer. They get them guns, and they have them shoot guns first at nothing just to feel the, 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 the firing of a gun. The next time, they set up mannequins, so not real human beings, but Um, at least images of fake human beings, have them shoot the mannequins. And then the third thing that would take place in this movie, and this happens regularly, is you have them kill human beings. Most of the time, the first time, you blindfold the child and you tell them to shoot in the air, just shoot forward, and they think they're not shooting anything when they take the blindfold off the kid. There's innocent men, women, and children that they've killed. 
and now that blood is on their hands and on their conscience. In this movie, um, the son is kidnapped, and there's a father who basically goes through hell and back to get to his kid. And this is sort of towards the end where the father and Leonardo DiCaprio's character, are they're digging in the ground, they're searching for a diamond, and the kid um, approaches them. But the kid is so programmed and so rewired that he pulls a gun on his father, thinking his father is the enemy. And I want you just to see one of the most beautiful illustrations of what God has, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, this is what God has done to you. You didn't seek him out. You weren't looking for God. You weren't like great and had your act together. The Father sought you out and whispered his truth over you. And you can see the lies that this boy has believed for a long time begin to melt. Father who loves you, and you will come home with me and be my son. If you are a child of God, you've been adopted into God's family, and you've believed so many false thoughts and lies about so many different things, and you've been telling yourself these things so long, and, and what God does is he comes in and says, you're mine, you belong to me. This is why uh, church community is so important. That's why there's, there's no such thing as just having an individual, personal type of Christian spirituality. It, it doesn't exist because you have to have God's truth, the Bible, people, a community, other Christians repeating God's truth over you again and again and again and again because guess what? You've been telling yourself lies and the world has been telling yourself lies again and again and again. Those messages are constant and there's a thousand different ways that these things manifest. But I know there, 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 are, there, there are those of you who in this room, there are some of you who have been Christians a long time, a long time, and you still do not believe God loves you. You still think you are unworthy of God's love. And, and there's some of you who had a mom or dad leave in childhood. 
and you told yourself, because a little kid can't wrestle without, a kid can't comprehend that. Why would mommy or daddy leave me? It must mean I am not special. I am not worthy to be loved. I am of no value. And that message that that five-year-old plays, well, it, it stays with you. It doesn't leave. You'd be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and still feel unworthy of love because mom or dad didn't tell you that. And again, there's a thousand different combinations and permutations of these types of things. There are some of you who grew up with extremely controlling parents. And at some point uh, in your adolescence, you had no control over your life, so you stopped eating. And, and, or, or when you did eat, you would throw up your food. You developed a form of an eating disorder. And, and people thought it was because of this, 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 or that. And all the while, secretly, it's because that was the only thing you had control of in your life. And yeah, it doesn't make much sense externally. But when a little kid has zero control of everything, all of a sudden, they start looking, at least I have this little thing. And the issue of eating disorders alone, there's a thousand different causes and reasons. Don't just take it to mean I'm saying they're, they're control issues. There's a thousand reasons that bring those to the surface. These are different combinations. There are some of you who you were made fun of at school. You were the kid who was always picked on. You were the loser in elementary school. You're the bottom of the pecking order. And so when you graduated college, you got a good job. And you were put in a structure where you could climb the corporate ladder of success. Here's the thing. There's finally a hierarchy for you to ascend in because your whole life you were the loser. But now in this organization, you actually have a way of climbing up. And you're obsessed with it because it feels good because no one ever stood up for you and you never had power as a child. The problem is that who gets to pay the price for that? It's not only you. It's your wife and kids because you slave to prove yourself because you're still just a little kid who's getting bullied, who's made fun of, who's the loser trying to prove himself. Look, we all have these things. If you were brought up in a good house with good parents in a good culture with a good family, you have less of it. Honestly, by God's grace, you, you probably have less of it. But the more things that are going on, the more baggage we bring to the table. And I know there's some of you here today that are going like, yeah, that's me. I'm the one with tons of baggage. You don't even know where to begin my story, how much hurts, pain, scars. You don't know my journey. In that movie, the boy thinks his father is the enemy. Do you know many people live their lives thinking God is the enemy? Running from him, hating him? And it's good news that while we hated God, Christ died for us. He chose us at our worst. And so this is the key thing I want everyone to understand today, the one key component to all of this. You can tell yourself things. So some of... Some of you tell yourselves the most horrible things. This isn't everybody, but I know that there's many of you. You, you. you play thoughts in your brain over and over again, and you tell yourself the most disgusting, vile stuff, just how horrible of a person of you are and how, how, how much shame you have. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. You are not even who you say you are. 
You are not who you say you are. You are not who the world says you are. You are not who your parents, your friends, your family say you are. You are not what your past says you are. You're not even what the present says you are. You are who God says you are. And God says, if you are in Christ, you're mine, my son, my daughter. You belong to me. Those other things do not have the final word on who you are. I do. And you are so loved. You are so precious. You are so loved, so precious. And so you, you, you got to understand, you, you are not the loser. You are not the drunk. You are not the divorcee. You are not the deadbeat. You are not just the plain person that's never noticed. You're none of those things. You are who God says you are. And God says, you're my kid. The father sent big brother to die on a cross in order to bring us into his family. And he knows all of those weaknesses and faults, but he says, I still love you. Just very same way I love my kids. First John focuses a lot about behavior. A lot of these sermons have been like, you don't act right, John says you're not a Christian. I mean, he just says these things again and again and again. And the reason why today is so important is many times people will focus on external behavior without dealing with the identity issues. Who do you think you are? If you think wrong thoughts about yourself, you are going to act stuff out. And it, behavior and thinking is intricately bound up together. They're tied together. And so you have to know who you are. You have to know what Christ has done for you. You have to speak gospel truth to yourself again and again and again. And you need a loving community to speak gospel truth to you again and again and again. And when you get the identity down right, you will notice behavior start to change. Um, one of the things about human beings is that our identities and the, 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 the thing we tell ourselves directly manifest in many ways how, how we go about living our life, what we think is meaningful, what we think is purposeful. It fuels our vocation, our mission, what we do with our life. And in one sense, this isn't kind of explicitly clear, but in another sense, it's everywhere. Like all the stories human beings tell, the movies we watch, the stories we, we tell again and again, Good ones usually have this thing where someone's rediscovered identity or their true identity is fueling their new purpose, meaning, and mission, and vocation in life. There's so many examples of it. You're probably thinking, I can't think of any examples right now. They're everywhere. It's like uh, my favorite one, the movie Gladiator. It's an old movie, but it's a good movie. And in Gladiator, there's this scene where the good guy takes off his, his mask and reveals himself to the bad guy, the, the, the emperor. And the, the emperor is saying, like, who are you? And uh, the, the main character, played by Russell Crowe, takes off his mask, and he looks him straight in the eye, and he says, I'm going to butcher this, but he's like, I am Maximus, Lucius, Mercius, something, something, something. And then he goes on and goes, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Phoenix Legion, Loyal, true servant of the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And when you're just like, oh my gosh, yes. And there's something in, on like an existential level, human beings respond to like, you, you're knowing who you are and what you're supposed to do. You can take a more funny example, not as serious. Princess Bride. I am Indigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to. It's the driving fuel in that. 
or for the kids when you build a raft and you sail past the reef and you declare, I am Moana. You got to understand the gospel. You got to understand who you are and let those truths inform how you think about the world. And so this is what I want to do. And we're, gonna, we're, we're done. I want, you to th- I want you to ask yourself some questions. Are there messages and lies that you are telling yourself that you tell yourself or lies or messages or deceptions that the world has taught you or family has taught you? But whatever they are, what are they? And ask yourself, do I believe them? What are they? Name, name them in your head right now. I mean, what are, what are the, the things that you know are not true, you know it on an intellectual level, but you believe it about yourself? And then I, I want you to see if you can find a link from how, how, how that is affecting your life. How, how thoughts interact with behavior. Think about that, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to ask you in that time of closing prayer to, to symbolically, if you will, put those thoughts in your hands, and as we pray, hold them out to God. What are the lies, the things you're believing? And say, God, I, I, I want you to take these. I don't want to carry them anymore. They're too, I don't want these. Speak your truth over me every day. And as your truth comes into my life, as the gospel is preached to my brain and my heart on a regular basis, remove these, the, these thoughts from my life. Before we, we pray, I want to show you one of my favorite verses in scriptures that illustrates these concepts perfectly. It's from Zephaniah 3.17. It's the picture of God holding his children. In this case, it's, it's Israel. Um, but he's, it's God holding his children like little babies in his arms. And that's the image. And what God is doing like a loving father is he's singing over his, his child. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with singing. Most of you can't believe this. This, this third line, he will rejoice over you with gladness. God holds you like a child and he's singing over you with gladness. This is my son. This is my daughter. I love you more than you'll ever know. Most of you, you cannot believe that about yourself. And you need God to do a work in your life right now. He sings over you like a loving father to his children. Father, um, As we hold out our, our hands, Lord, with, with, with things and lies and deceptions, um, we symbolically we, we give them to you. We do not want to carry these, these things anymore. Because of the work of the cross, there is no condemnation for those in Christ, Lord. And we want to know that. We want to live that. We want to walk in it. And we want to be transformed by it. But we're children with lots of hurts and wounds. And so, God, we, we give these things to you. We, we need you to take them. Please take them from us. And we ask that you would put people in our lives that would speak gospel truth to us again and again and remind us of, of ultimate reality. We thank you that while we were children of wrath, you sought us out and saved us. You adopted us into your family. And we love you and we thank you for your grace today. In Jesus' name.
Amen.